This is episode 62 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with the 2020 Annual Enrichment Conference Everyday Evangelism. This is session two, Tuesday morning with Jeff Vanderstel, titled The Power of the Gospel. Good morning. How are we doing? It's really great to be with you. I, uh, Looked at the shirts I had hanging in my room after last night and realized I had at least one flannel I could wear and fit in with the group well here. So hopefully I, you feel like I'm at home with you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, many of you know me and some don't know me. Uh, my name is Jeff Vanderstelt. It's a joy to get to serve you today and tomorrow uh, as we open God's Word together. My hope is that you will cherish the gospel more and more from our time together. And that it will more deeply impact your hearts degree at which it will lead you to bring it to your church with uh, a new profound sense of its depth, its breadth, its power, its ability to transform your church and your community. So that's my heart. I want to tell you a little bit about myself, but I want to pray first as we consider the gospel together. Father, we are grateful that we can say with certainty because of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, and now his ascension and intercession on our behalf that we are dearly loved children of God because of you. And in that we want to not only rest, but work. We want to work with all of your power that is at work in us. We pray that you would again show us the beauty of the gospel this morning, that by your spirit you'd convict us in areas where we have chosen not to believe or we've walked away We thought it was just the beginning and not the totality of our faith. We ask that you would transform us into the image of Christ, that you'd convict us by your spirit, and as a result, Lord, you would be glorified in our lives, in our churches, in our cities. We ask that you do this for your glory and our joy. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, uh, I've been married for 27 years uh, this Friday. We're celebrating 27 years with my wife, Janie. Yes, and uh, we have three uh, children that are coming to the, the later years of teen, uh, the later teen years, and so we're getting ready to send our oldest off to college, which is, you know, some of you have already done that, so you're praying for me and my wife as we enter into a new stage, but that's starting to happen for us. Uh, so one, three wonderful kids that I'm so blessed to have, we're so blessed to have. I've been able to serve in a variety of roles over the years in the church. I uh, was in youth ministry for several years, as James said, that's how I Janie and I met he and Mary Beth, and uh, we were part of Sun Life Ministries together, uh, served in Seattle area, and then in Chicago. Uh, I, I served in both startup of youth ministries as well as stepping into very broken situations where previous leaders had been inappropriately engaged in ways that led one to go to prison, another to lose his job, and so I've stepped into a lot of messes over the years. Uh, one of the, the last youth ministry I served in was at Willow Creek. And uh, got to serve there for a few years and rebuild and design a more decentralized approach to ministry when we were there. Uh, Sense is different, but um, got to lead that. And in all of those places of ministry, especially with students, I continued to see something that happened. When we gave them the gospel and we trained them up in in how to make disciples, we saw students on the front line of mission. They led their friends to Christ. They started to teach them the basics of the faith. And I remember having a father sit down with me one time and say, I don't know what's going on, but my son is better at disciple-making than me. Will you teach me what you taught him? It was at Willow Creek when I was there. And I, I realized at that moment that what was happening in the church, and this was happening to a lot of people, is that these students would graduate into what they called big church, and then they were encouraged to take a seat and watch somebody else do it. And at best, they would give, they would maybe invite a friend, and hopefully serve in one of the ministries. But the idea that they were a disciple-making disciple had kind of gone out the window. And uh, and I watched a lot of these students leave the church, in fact, because they thought, man, I can find something more important to give my life to if the church doesn't need me, Uh, which is just a a bit of a warning to all of us, because right now, you probably know this, but both the millennial generation and the next generation after them has far greater causes than we're often giving them in the church, and they're going away to other places because we're not giving them a cause worth dying for. And so if, this wasn't going to be my message, but I feel like the Spirit's prompting me to say this. Call the generation that is leaving high school, going into college, to care enough about the eternal destiny of souls that they're willing to give their lives for the sake of the gospel in your church. 
please don't hesitate to call them something worth dying for because the world is presenting them with plenty of opportunities that seem better than what we're saying. Okay, that's got to change. Okay, so hopefully you get a little bit of unction in you right now or even the next day and have to say, like, let's call this generation to really take ownership of being the church where we live. So I, I got to do that, but I also was disillusioned. In fact, maybe thought maybe there's not a place for, for me in the church because I'm kind of a, a, a kind of a weirdo, and you know people thought I was a little strange. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to leave the church, go into the business field, learn how to train businessmen and women how to do gospel ministry in the business place. That was my original training before I became a pastor. The Lord had different plans. A guy named Bill Clem called me up and said, hey, would you move back out to Seattle? Let's plant churches together. Let's see if we can reach the whole I-5 corridor. Uh, 20 churches planted all up and down the corridor, working together to see gospel saturation take place. Joined Bill in 2003. Uh, my heart when we started Soma Church in Tacoma was that it would be normal that every Christian would be a disciple-making disciple. That, that would not be the abnormal. That would be the expectation. And so we started the church that way. Now, I made a mistake. I put mission and discipleship out in front of everybody. We worked hard. We served. We opened homes. We exercised hospitality. We built relationships with neighbors. We tried to tell them everything we could about Jesus. But after about a year or two of that, I looked around, and the majority of my team was exhausted, weary, and worn out. The reason why is because I called them to do the work of the gospel without the gospel. I called them to bring the message of the gospel without the power of the gospel. And they were not affluent people in the gospel, but they knew a little bit of the gospel, just enough to get them out there on mission, but not enough to sustain them on mission. And so they weren't a gospel-fluent people. And the Lord really grabbed my heart as he convicted me of what I'd led people to do, basically to go do the work of God without the power of God. And so I want to talk about that first for us today in this session. I have a water bottle over there. It might be helpful. I'm get a little bit of... Can I move this down? Is that okay? I'm short, and this is in the way of my sight. <clears throat> Great. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to talk, first of all, about the power of the gospel for you. Okay? Here's what I've learned. If, if you and I don't believe it's the power of God for salvation, we won't proclaim it, we won't form people in it, we won't lead them to walk it out in all of life. And so I want to start with you. I want to start with you. How do you receive the gospel? How do you respond to the gospel? Do you believe, as some have, I think, falsely believed, that the gospel is just the ABCs of Christianity and then everything else is what we add to it? Versus what Keller and others have said, is it's not the ABCs, it's the A to Z of Christianity. It's the beginning, it's the middle, it's the end of all that we have and all that we are in Christ. And James quoted this verse last night and said the other side of it. He was ashamed of the gospel. Look at your Bibles in Romans 1, 16. And this should be on the screen, so hopefully it's showing up. <clears throat> I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I know we know this passage, but I want to ask you, do you believe it really is the power of God to save? And, and you, you know you believe it's the power of God to save because you continually proclaim it as often as you can every time God's people get together and wherever you go because you know there is no other way in which God will bring salvation to the hearts and, and minds and souls of men and women. So do you believe it, first of all? And Here's how you know you believe something uh, and, and that you love something is you all talk about what you love most. Right? That's the reality. When I first met my wife, Janie, uh, and I was on a hike with our senior pastor. I was the youth pastor at this church in Seattle. All along the hike, I'm like, man, she's so beautiful and she's so funny and she loves the word of God and she's got this incredible family and did I tell you what her smile, when she smiles, she lights up the room and I just can't stop talking about her. At one point, Sam, our senior pastor says, shut up and marry the girl, right? <laughs> like no one had to give me a class on how to talk about the one I love. I didn't need evangelism training to discuss my love for my wife, right? Same is true of my kids. I mean, you all know someone who, when they have their firstborn, 
they can't stop taking pictures of them all the time and posting them. And, you know, they had their first poop, and you're like, I don't want to know about that. And they had their first step, and they're now walking. I always want to go like, they're humans. They all do the same thing, right? We should expect that. It's not new. Uh, your kid does what every kid does. But we all do it. Janie and I posted lots of pictures of our firstborn, not as many of our secondborn, hardly any of our thirdborn, poor Maggie, right? That's usually how it works. Because you, 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 wanna, you want everyone to know. How many grandparents in the room? You want everyone to know about your grandkids, right? No one said, here's a class on how to talk about grandkids. Nobody had to teach you that. When, when the Seahawks went to the first Super Bowl and we won... Nobody had to train anybody in Seattle how to celebrate the win. And so the reality is, in some cases, we shouldn't have to train people how to do evangelism. Because if they're cherishing Christ, if they're overwhelmed with his love, if they're so captured with their affections for all that he is and all that he's done, they will talk about him. And the question is, are you? Because you talk about what you love most. Years into my marriage, as often is the case, I think, at least it was for me, maybe this wasn't for you, my love, or at least my attentiveness to my love for my wife, waned. I remember an older man pulled me aside and he said, you don't talk about her like you used to. What happened? I said, I don't know. And we had to, if my wife were up here, she would tell you the years that were difficult, our first ten. <laughs> I remember the first time she said, yeah, year one, that was, I was scared to death. I, she was 20 when she got married, and she never lived in another house, so moved like four blocks away to my house. That's how close we lived. <laughs> uh, and she would, as she described the years, she would say how hard they were. And so it was because I was enamored with her when I was trying to win her, but then I got enamored with ministry, and that became my, in some ways, the love that replaced her. almost had a, really an affair with my church in that sense, because it gave me a whole lot. By the way, pastors, we are some of the most codependent people in the world, right? The, the definition of codependency is I'm okay if you're okay with me, right? And how many of us, when we're preaching, are going, how are they doing? Are they okay with me? And afterwards, I, I hope I got a lot of feedback, and man, I got people that left our church because they don't like how I said this, and you, you go into, I mean, you get in trouble because you live to win the affection of everybody else, and maybe you're not like me, and I'm just the, the dysfunctional guy in the room, but, but we do this, and I did that in my marriage, and I remember this guy said to me, hey, you know, you used to talk about her all the time. What happened? And as I started to tell her again why I loved her and what it was that first attracted me to her, my first love, all of a sudden my love grew for her again because not only do you talk about what you love most, but you start to love what you talk about most. And that's why we're going to talk this morning, but then tonight and tomorrow, about how do we create a gospel-fluent culture where people are talking about Jesus all the time? Because if the church were talking about Jesus all the time, we wouldn't struggle with evangelism. It's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. But what have we cherished more? As James said it last night, have we abandoned our first love? And if you have, you'll know because you don't talk about him anymore. We also talk about what we believe works. We're highly pragmatic people, right? Some of the stuff I'm going to talk about tonight and tomorrow is going to be some real practical ways of how we develop a gospel-fluent people. And you're going, to, you're going to probably take notes on the real practical stuff, and that's great. I hope that it serves you well. But the tendency for all of us is we talk about what works most. In my context, I live in a very high-tech savvy context I'm in Bellevue, Washington, I presently lead a church that's called Doxa Church. It used to be what was known as Mars Hill. So when that all happened, they asked me to step in and rebuild a church out of a lot of the ruins of what was left. And I've been doing that the last five years. And I, live, I have a very tech-savvy, very affluent people. And so they are excited about every gadget and every strategy. And, and they talk about it all the time. And they know more diets than I know existed. You know, and whether it's paleo or... I don't know. I'm not even going to go into it. You guys can talk about all the diets. But when I meet somebody who loves a, a new diet, they talk about it all the time. We had a, a woman in our mission community years ago who convinced us all to change our diet at least three times in one year. Okay? She got us all doing CrossFit, uh, which I hated, but I did. 
You know, and at the end of the year, I'm like, why do you convince people to do so many things? Like, she sells this lip stuff, lip scents or something, and, and then essential oils. And I mean, I could go on, and she can sell you on anything. And at the end of the year, I said, you know what? You're the best evangelist I know. You just don't tell anybody about Jesus. If you just took all of that ability and applied it to sharing the truth about Jesus, you'd be leading people to Christ day after day after day. And what I have found is more of us in the room are evangelists than we realize. We just evangelize around something else. We talk about what we love most. We talk about what, we work, what, what works most. And that's why we should not be ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation. It works. God is pragmatic in that sense. What he does works. And the only way lives will be changed in your church is if they come to know and believe and submit to the truths of the gospel in all areas of their life. Nothing else is going to change them. You come up with your best three-point sermon, your five steps to success, whatever it is, if you don't give them Jesus, you are failing them in terms of giving them what will transform their life. And it does start with you. Are you ashamed? Are you excited, proud, boasting? Paul says, i got nothing else to boast in. But Jesus Christ, in him crucified, that's all I've got. He goes on, for in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Don't miss that. It's Paul's way of saying it's the beginning, it's the end, and it's everything in between. The gospel is so good that it deals with our past, our present, and our future. So I just want to walk through those together. And here's the tendency as I begin to preach on the gospel and what it is and why it's such good news is many of us will go like, yeah, I've already heard that. And I would just say, if that's the response, then you don't really know it. How many of you guys have seen the movie Lion King? Remember that scene when the hyenas say, Mufasa. And they all go, oh. Remember that? And they're like, say it again. And they're like, they're, they love the kind of fear that it creates to think of the king. Mufasa. Oh. I tell my church all the time, every time I preach the gospel, you ought to say, say it again. Say it again. Because you have that movement in your heart where you go, yes. That is my song. That is my story. That's all I've got. Say it again. In the gospel, the power of God for salvation is being revealed. The righteousness of God is being revealed. God's way of making you what you were always meant to be is revealed in the gospel. Not only is the righteousness of God revealed in the sense of this is what it is, but this is how you become righteous as well. It is Jesus. It is all he's done. It is his life. And when I walk through that, he has given everything so that you might become everything God always intended you to be. It's not just about your eternal destiny, though it's that. It's about your present reality and how God wants to transform everything. First of all, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. By the way, I know that you're keeping that up there, and that's great. If you need to switch back and forth with a camera, I'm okay with it not being up there the whole time, whoever's running that. So um, the screen, that is, not you guys. Um, we have been saved from the penalty of sin. This is our past. Paul says it this way to the church in Ephesus. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. By the way, it's really important to remember what we were. What were you apart from him? Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Notice it doesn't say by nurture. We weren't by nurture children of wrath. We were by nature children of wrath. We were born into the world rebellious against God. We were all born with a sin nature. And all of you who, who have, have had kids know what's the, the two most famous words a two-year-old says. No and mine. Right? Abraham Kuyper is famous for saying, Jesus it, it basically says there is not one... Christ says there's not one inch over all of creation over which I don't say this is mine. And except for a two-year-old says, you're wrong, Jesus. It's mine. And so we grow up 
this idea that everything is about me. And every, I am the center of the universe. And that is a heart bent against God and bent towards self. And the heart bent towards self destroys self. It destroys its own being. And God knows that. He knows that the wage of sin is death. Not just someday we'll die and be separated forever from God, but that from the moment we're born, we enter into a life dying. Right? Because it's a relational death. It's a psychological death. It's an emotional death. It's a, it's a communal death. It's a cultural death. And look at the world. It's everywhere. Death, 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 death. We need a Savior. We were by nature children of wrath, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, pause there, Romans 5, 8, this is how we know the love of God, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If he loved us while we were sinners, how much more as children of God? Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him. Don't miss that. Seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You and I, through the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus, have been raised up from children of wrath to become children of God, dearly loved and accepted, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. That's who you and I are in Christ Jesus. Do you believe that? Don't miss this. The gospel includes Jesus' life. He, as the perfect son of God, came and lived the life you and I didn't. Perfectly submitted to the Father's will in every way so that you and I in our rebellion can go to the one who only ever submitted and receive his submission in exchange for our rebellion. That's what his life means for us. The gospel is not just about the cross. If you don't have the life of, of Christ, you, the cross means nothing. And so he did what you and I can't do. And then he went to the cross in exchange for us, and he offered himself up as a sacrifice. And he who knew no sin, Paul says and to the church in Corinthians, in Corinth, he who knew no sin became sin so that you and I in him might become the righteousness of God. I mean, are you walking around going like, I'm righteous? By the way, you ought to tell your church regularly, you are the saints yeah, we were children of wrath. We were sinners apart from Christ, but in Christ and through faith in what he's done, we have been called saints, holy ones. You know why most of us continue to walk in sin? Because we still think our primary identity is sinner. We still think our primary identity is children of wrath. But we're no longer children of wrath. We're children of God set apart for his purposes called the holy ones of God. If you really believed you were holy, you'd live a holy life. We don't live a holy life so God will call us holy. We live a holy life because he already called us holy in Christ Jesus. It's the outcome of our faith, not the means. It's what God produces when we believe it so that we might live a whole new life. I had a guy come to me years ago that I'd been sharing the gospel with regularly. And it was after a Sunday gathering. He said, can we meet? And so we got together. And he said, you know, I, I, I want to believe everything you're saying, Jeff. But you just have no idea what I've done. And I said, well, tell me. Scripture's clear. Confess your sins to one another. Go ahead, confess it. And so he started to tell me what he did. And at one point I stopped. I said, you're right. That's really bad. He said, see, I told you. I said, oh, I didn't say God couldn't save you. I just said your sin's really bad. By the way, don't diminish sin. It, let it be as wicked as it is. Because if you don't see how bad it is, you'll never see how good he is. You'll never understand why you need him if you think that you're okay without him. And so at one point, he kept going. He said, you want me to go? Keep going, go. And he said more and more. And he said, see, I've done way too much. I said, no, your problem isn't what you've done. Your problem is you think your sin is bigger than the Savior. You actually think you're bigger than God. You think your works are bigger than his works. So your real problem is pride. Because you really think you could outsin the very grace and power of Jesus Christ and what he's done for you. I said, until you see that you're not God and that God is greater than you and his grace is greater than your sin, then this will never become good news to you. And the problem is you'll always need to make up for it with your own good works because you think it's your bad works that keeps you from being saved instead of his good work that makes you saved. 
Two years later, I'm preaching. The guy comes forward. I hadn't seen him in a long time. He comes forward and he said, hey, I know I haven't been around for a while. Just last week, what you said to me two years ago finally made sense. And I'm here because I am a new man. Now I've got a lot of work ahead of me, I know. Because I, I believe I'm forgiven, but I've got so many broken habits in my life that I need to get a lot of help. But I know that now with God's help, not only does he love me, but he can help me overcome. I'm telling you, you have people in your church who still think they're saved by their works because they think it's their works that are damning them before God. And you know that people believe in their works because they actually work harder thinking God will love them more instead of they rest in the work of Christ knowing that they don't have to do one thing for God to love them more. And therefore, when they come to do the work of the gospel or the ministry, they don't need anybody's approval or feedback. They don't need you to notice. Like, you start having a congregation that's free to serve Jesus out of an entirely different motivational system because they're doing it out of great affection and love, not out of a, a gap, not out of a need, not out of a desire to make up for what they've done. I wonder how many of you still are in that place. I know as a pastor, so often I still am operating at times not from a center on the gospel. I need people's approval. I've got to earn somebody's affection. I'm fighting for my security. And as a pastor who preaches the gospel, I hope faithfully as much as I can, I need this message every day. That, that in Jesus, the shame of my sin has been covered with his righteousness. That in Jesus, the guilt that I sh- could never pay for has been completely atoned for. That in Jesus, the fear of facing punishment has been wiped away because God now loved me when I was a sinner. How much more can I be confident as a son that he loves me? You need this, pastors, pastors' wives, women in the room. You all need this. You need this every day, every moment. And not only have we been saved from the penalty of sin, we are being saved from the power of sin. The gospel didn't just happen, though it did. It really, the real person who is the God-man, Jesus Christ, came and lived a life, perfectly submitted to God the Father, went to the cross on your behalf, on my behalf, was truly buried in the, in the grave, but he was risen from the dead, and he is alive. Paul says it this way to the church in Corinth in chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 2. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. That's present active right now happening in the room as i'm preaching you are being saved do you realize that you might go yeah i know jeff i was saved for me i was saved when i was 21 and every day after that since i tell our church you're being saved all the time yes it happened and it's happening because he is saving you he continues if you hold fast to the word i preached to you unless you believed in vain which otherwise in other words Pastors and leaders, teachers in the room, you got to keep preaching the same word of the gospel over and over again because that's the only hope for which people have by which they will continue to be saved. It's only the gospel. So it continues, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, which assumes his life. So Paul would say it's the life and death, not just the death. We have to have his life, otherwise he can't die. He died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul, Paul wants to just kind of slow down and say, all right, I know there's this discussion going on in the Corinthian church. They're wondering if there's really a resurrection. Seems kind of weird to think that a bunch of people are going to come out of the graves. I get that. So let's talk about this reality of the resurrection. He knows if they, if they reject the truth of the resurrection, they have to reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And if they reject the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they have no hope whatsoever. As he says it, you ought to be pitied of all people because you are still in your sins. Notice that. He doesn't say you're not forgiven. He says you're still in them. That's later on in chapter 15. What is he saying? He's saying you have no power. You're still under the, the reign of evil. You're still children of darkness. You're still slaves to sin. But that's not true. He rose from the dead. 
So the gospel isn't just the good news that he lived and died for you, and that when he was buried, he took all the condemnation of, again, against you to the grave. I hope you, you believe that. You know, first, the, the first verse in chapter 8 of Romans, Romans 8, 1 says, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Later in that passage, it says, because in his flesh, in his body, he condemns sin. What, what, what happened? He took sin with him to the grave, and he said, you don't get to win anymore. You don't get to have the final word over anybody that's in me anymore. I will have the final word over them. Isn't that good news? It's very good news. But then he rose again. He rose again from the dead. I was talking to my daughter the other day. She's, in, uh, senior, she's a senior, and she's doing a religious studies class, which I'm amazed that they do where we're at. And I always ask, why don't they bring the experts in to teach the content? Uh, because, like, I'd love to come in and teach about what Christianity really is, not some teacher that doesn't believe it, but regardless. Uh, she said, you know, Dad, there's so many, like, similarities in all of our religion. A lot of us, a lot of our religions have a creation story, and she's kind of walking through, and she said, she said I'm kind of, I'm afraid to talk to you about this, but I'm having some doubts. I said, oh, sweetheart, don't ever be afraid. I, I still have doubts. Like, the, the whole point of working out my faith is working honestly with my doubt and telling God about it. And I said, so I want this to be a safe place. And so we started talking about her doubts, and she said, well, what makes us so different? And, uh, you know, I, I walked through, like, well, one, we have a God who took on flesh, dwelt among us, took on our sin, suffered in our place. Like, no religion has a God who willingly suffered on behalf of everyone else for what they did against him. Like, pretty amazing. But I said, the resurrection, babe, is the deal. I mean, he, Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to people who, when this was written, were still alive and it was made up, They'd all go like, no, no, Paul, we don't, you stop telling the, the, the myth. It's a lie. But no, nobody's pushing back. And, and why is this so important? Why is the resurrection necessary in our gospel presentation, in our own personal belief? Because here's what I get concerned about oftentimes when people share the gospel, is they share the gospel for justification but not for sanctification. They share the gospel of a, of, a, of a bloody Savior who died on the cross for our sins, but they don't talk about his resurrection over Satan's sin and death. And so we have this, this forgiveness, but we have no power. And then we live as a powerless people because we still think sin is more powerful than Jesus. But he's, it's not. If you were to just do a cursory read through Luke chapter 3, you start at his baptism. And I want to do this because I want you to see what the Holy Spirit does. So the, the beautiful thing about the resurrection is not only is it the, the absolute certainty that you and I know that our sins have been fully paid for. Because if the wage of sin is death and Jesus is still dead, we're in trouble. But he, he rose again from the dead. It's been paid for. So that's, that's one good thing about the resurrection. There's many good things. That's one. But we also know that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, Romans 8, the Spirit of God is now in us. And therefore, we have the power of the resurrection today. And if you just do a cursory read of what the Spirit of God did in the ministry and life of Jesus, this is what you hear. He comes out of the water of baptism. Verse 22, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. By the way, what would be good for all of you to do if, or teach your church to do this? Read uh, Luke and Acts side by side and see what the Spirit of God does to Jesus and to the early church. It's the same thing. It's really powerful. Well, what, what's going on here? Paul says in Romans 8, if you have the Spirit of God, if you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit of Christ. And that's the Spirit by which God raised him from the dead. And if you have that, then you get to say to God, Daddy, Father. One of the first things that I look for in a, a, a person who's saying they're experiencing the new birth is Tell me about your relationship with God. What's God like to you right now? And if they don't have a sense of God's love, then I give them no assurance of salvation. Okay? Because at the very beginning of the, the understanding of what it means to be a Christian is God so loved the world, and he loves me. And he so loved me that he gave his only son for me so that I might become a child of God. Dearly loved, John 17, Jesus prays at the very end of his high priestly prayer, Father, I pray that you would love them just like you love me. So that's one of the first things we get is, you're my son, you're my daughter, I love you, I'm well pleased with you. Now I know a lot of us have some 
work to do in terms of our own earthly dads and how that ruined this idea of father, and so there may be some help there we need to bring. But the Spirit of God is saying, I love you. You're mine. And that's what Jesus starts his ministry with. By the way, if you don't get up and before you preach or do whatever ministry God's called you to and start with the sense that you are deeply loved by God the Father, then you're going to be starting in the wrong place. You're going to be trying to earn his love instead of operating out of an overwhelming sense of his affection. But it goes on, verse four, or chapter 4, we, we see Jesus, verse 1, full of the Holy Spirit, returns from the Jordan and is led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Don't miss that. In order to face his temptation, he has to be full of the Spirit. And then he spends 40 days just with the Spirit. Just in solitude, silence, enjoying communion with God. And then he gets tempted. And most often when I ask this question, and you may do it too, how did Jesus overcome the temptation? What do people most often say? Scripture. He quoted Scripture. Partially true but not sufficient. Because who else quoted Scripture here? Satan. So just memorizing Scripture and quoting it doesn't help you to overcome sin. You actually need the Holy Spirit. Right? Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit and the Word. Spirit and Word is what overcomes. Why? Because the Spirit of God is more powerful than the world, than the sin we face. Like He is the victorious one. And so Jesus overcomes with the Spirit and Word. Then we keep going. Verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as it was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. He stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolls it, finds a place where it's written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me. Don't miss that. How did Jesus preach the way he did? And don't say he's Jesus. Okay? It's telling you. Luke's making it really clear. Even Jesus needed the anointing of the Holy Spirit to preach the word in power. Because he anointed me to proclaim good news, sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. How did he preach? How did he proclaim? How did he heal? How did he set people free from demons? The Holy Spirit. That's how he did it. The power of God on the Son of God. Then he rolls up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. All the eyes in the synagogue are fixed on him. And I love this. He says this, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they all spoke well of him and marveled at his gracious words. It's really important there. Gracious words means God-given. Okay, the word grace is a gift. We know that we often say grace is God's undefined favor, I mean, unmerited favor that he's given. I want to also say it's God's empowerment, unmerited empowerment, not just unmerited favor. When we hear the word grace, if we only limit it to God's posture towards us versus his empowerment of us, then we've misunderstood grace. Grace isn't just God loves you. Grace is God is now in you, empowering you for the work that you couldn't do apart from him. Grace isn't just about how you are saved. It's how you're being saved by his power, not your own. And then they say this, I love this, isn't this Joseph's son? Here's what's going on. They're looking at him going like, we watched you all your life. What happened to you? You were just a carpenter's son. You never preached like this. You never healed anybody. You never, like, who are you? What happened to you? And Jesus told them, I was anointed by the Spirit. I read it from the very scriptures. This has been fulfilled. Now, we also know this is the messianic fulfillment, right? But, but don't make the mistake of saying, well, that's Jesus, that's not us. Because John 14 says, whoever will believe in me, Jesus says, will do the same works that I do, and even greater works than these will they do. And then chapter 15, how? If you abide in me and I in you, you'll bear much fruit. It's not you doing it, it's him doing it in you by his spirit. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, the good news of the gospel, that he is alive, means that you are the living temple of God, having the same spirit of God that empowered Christ to do everything he did. And so what happens at Pentecost when the spirit is poured out? They, they proclaim the mighty deeds of God in languages people can understand. Don't miss it. They all preach. Men and women, young and old, every one of them is a preacher now. 
Remember when Moses, people were like a little, like, hey, man, there's some people doing stuff that you do, and we should stop them. And he goes, man, I wish that all were prophets. Guess what? They are. The power of the Spirit, all God's people can be empowered to, to preach the good news with power and authority like Jesus did. And there's some of you going like, I don't know, I don't know, I believe that. Then you're not reading the same Bible I'm reading. That's all I'm going to say. Like if you found some theological system that gets us out of this idea that the resurrection only means we will one day be resurrected and it doesn't mean that you are experiencing powerful resurrection life today, then you're reading the wrong Bible. And then the gospel for you is only your ticket into heaven, not the means by which God empowers you to live a new life today. That's why Paul says to the church in Philippi, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is him who's at work in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Years ago, I was working with a brand new disciple who was in her late 70s and, as you can imagine, had many, many patterns of sin that were not easy to get over. And we were talking about one of them in particular, and, and she, you know, it was just how she was treating another person and unwilling to forgive and love and all these things, and so they weren't reconciled. And at one point, I asked her, I said, um, do, do you want to do the good? Do you want to forgive? Do you want to be in this relationship? She goes, no. I go, okay. Do you want to want to? She said, no. I said, do you want to want to want to? She goes, maybe. I go, do you want to want to want to want to? She said, maybe, 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 maybe. And I was, at one point I said, here's the good news of the gospel. God isn't waiting for you to want it. He's waiting for you to come to him to change the way you want. He will change your heart. He will give you new desires. He will write his law on your heart. He'll make you want to do the very work. That's what Jeremiah promised would happen when the Spirit of God was poured out. I'll give you a new heart. I'll pour out my Spirit in you. I will give you the very commands and the desire to, to keep them and the ability to do them. And so we just started praying the want to, want to, want to prayers. Like, because I knew she was a new child of God. I'd seen the Spirit of God change her heart. And, and so we just said, Lord, would you help our sister to want, to want, to want, to want. And you know what? He did. He changed her desires. You have no other hope for your church to change apart from the gospel. Let me be really clear. Your preaching is not that good. Your strategies stink. In comparison to the power of the gospel to set people free from the power of sin. We have no hope apart from it. Uh, there's a, a woman in our my staff right now, her name is Vanessa. She is a wonderful, sweet woman. She's um, very, very introverted, quite insecure about speaking out loud in front of people. And yet, I have been watching her grow in this belief that the gospel is the power of God to save her today, to set her free from her fears. I'm going to share an exercise we do as a church later but one of the things that we do is we teach people how to speak the gospel to each other through the communion, through the elements, the bread and the cup. And we were doing that with our leaders and having one person share a need that they have and then we speak the gospel through the bread and the cup to them. And Vanessa was in my circle and as, I start, as we started, someone shared and everyone was quiet and no one responded. So I'm like, okay, I'll start. So I shared the good news to the person and then we did it again and nobody says anything. They're all just shy and afraid to speak up. And so I do it one more time and I go, that's the last time I'm doing it. And so then the third person shares, and, and I, I look, and I'm quiet, and I'm just waiting, and no one's talking, and I look over at Vanessa, and I give her that little look, you know, that look that says God's going to do something right now. And she said in that moment, she felt the Spirit of God empower her, and she began to open her mouth, and she spoke one of the most powerful gospel messages to this person's brokenness that I'd ever heard. And she, when she did it, you could see herself going like, so the next person shared, she jumped on it. Vanessa did the second one. Then the third. And I said, okay, Vanessa, you can't stop. Let someone else do it. And later on, I, I asked her, so what was that like? She goes, Jeff, I felt the Spirit of God give me words and power that I didn't know I had. She said, I can't get enough of that. I said, here's the deal. Tomorrow you're going to be told you can't do it ever again, and you're going to shut up if you don't keep believing the gospel is the power of God to save you today from your fears, your insecurity, and the evil one's lies and deceit to say that you don't have the power that Jesus had when he was risen from the dead. I'm seeing her grow as an evangelist. She would have never said she's an evangelist. But the power of the Spirit is empowering her to pe preach the gospel in ways that she would have never believed she could do before. Do you believe that for your people? 
You've got you to gotta preach like you believe it, because if you don't preach like you believe it, it starts with you and saying, like, I don't know if I believe it for me, which is why we're starting here. <laughs> Lastly, we will be saved from the presence of sin. I, there's a, a group that I'm meeting with regularly to kind of help me kind of pay attention to my heart. Over the years as a pastor, I've learned that performance is a great way to get people to love you. And so I operate from the frontal lobe a lot more than I do the, the back, the emotions. And I'm learning how to pay attention to my heart. So I've got some work to do and still growing um, in being honest about what I'm really going through in real life. And uh, this particular guy who's been mentoring me uh, told the story once about a rattlesnake um, that he came across and he had to kill it. And I know you guys are used to killing things like that because you're all from Oregon or whatever. So, or a lot of you are from Alaska. I've never killed like anything but birds, you know, when I was a kid with the BB gun. So uh, anyway, he tells a story about the snake. Of course, all the fear rose up in him when he, when he stumbled upon the snake. And then later on, he's hanging out in his pickup truck and he looks down and he sees this squirrely thing on the corner of his eye and he freaks out again and has that same emotion he had when he came across the snake. But then he realizes it's just like a, a tie cable. And, and he said this, he said, he said, here's the deal. All of us are not afraid of the future. Our fear is about, that, or we're afraid that the past will repeat itself. Because we don't, we don't have a clue about the future. We're, all our fears are based upon what's happened to us in the past. And what Peter wants us to understand is that there's a future day when sin will no longer have power over you, and he wants us to live like we believe it today. Listen to what he says in, in 1 Peter 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he's caused us to be born again. This is past. To a living hope. Through the resurrection, that's present. Through the, living, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A still past. To future. An inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We need to understand, we haven't just been saved from the penalty of sin and we're being saved from the power of sin. We will be saved from the presence of sin. And what's already happened in the past informs what will happen in the future. See, what, what Peter wants us to understand is, if you live in fear, it's because you don't know your story. It's been changed. It's been transformed. It's being redeemed. And you have a future that's absolutely secure. Don't miss these words. Imperishable. You have eternal life now and forever. It's not just after you die. Undefiled. You can't even ruin your salvation. You can't mess this one up. Your sin cannot destroy the Savior's work. I just lost my friend in November to suicide. My wife regularly asks, do you think he's in heaven? I said, absolutely, because if my confidence was in his ability to confess his sin before he died, then we're all going to hell. Because none of us knows the totality of our sin. And so therefore, there are sins I will not know how to confess. So my confidence is not in his ability to confess his sin or even make it to the end. My confidence is in a Savior who saves regardless of what we've done or will do. He died once and for all. Past, present, future sin. Amen? It's undefiled. And it's unfading. We will be transformed from one degree of glory to another until one day when we see him, we will be like him. This is our salvation. And if you believe that it happened and it's happening, then you have no fear of the future because you know it will happen. It will happen. And I'm going to tell you, leaders, one of the reasons why we don't step out in faith to share the gospel is because we are afraid of what will happen. We're afraid of what will happen. Either I'll mess it up, or people reject me, or I'll lose friends. If we open up our home to people who don't love Jesus, especially their little kids, they're going to ruin our stuff, get our carpet dirty. If I borrow out my truck, they might scratch it. On and on and on, because we are afraid of what will happen instead of being confident of what we know will happen and that the only thing that really, really matters can never be taken away from you or me.
Your salvation is secure. And that's the only thing that matters at the end. It's not your reputation, your stuff, what people think, whether you even screw up a message. You know how many times I've been preaching and I get done, I go, oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Or that was the worst message I've ever preached. And I get down and I sit in front and someone comes up and I'm like, Pastor, that was the best message I've ever heard. And you're like, that's the worst message I've ever given. And then they tell you something that you didn't say. (laughs) Right? And they're like, when you said this, and you're inside, you're going, I never said any of that. And then you realize it's the Spirit of God who is saving, not you. And you're just a vessel to get up, and sometimes you're a fool for Jesus. And in that moment, the wisdom of God is seen through foolish men because we stand on something bigger and better and more powerful than us. And when you do that, people's lives are transformed. Their present reality has power because they get the Spirit, and then their future hope is absolutely secure. And you will have a people, because you believe it and you're leading them in it, who will begin to live out the truth of the gospel in ways that will transform your cities and your rural context and your suburban context. Amen? Starts with us. Starts with us. And if you would, maybe you can take a picture of this slide to talk about it later. Which aspect of the gospel do you struggle most to believe? I've been saved. Maybe you still have the guilt, the shame, overriding so much in your life. I'm being saved. Jeff, when you talk about the power of the Spirit, I'm just like, yeah, I don't know. I feel, I feel powerless to overcome sin. I don't even know if we can see people healed these days. Those things that Jesus did, I don't know that they happen anymore. I'm just going to tell you they do. In fact, James didn't say it last night, but it was in his message. It wasn't just good deeds that they did. They saw people healed. And when people are healed, then you have to explain how. That's a really great open door to the gospel. Right? But you've got to believe that he still heals. I'm just going to tell you testimony after testimony in our church in the last five years. I wish there were more, but we have several documented healings. People getting sight back, cancer being removed, people who could hardly walk, getting set free to walk. I mean, just, and I I used to go like, yeah, I wish that was true. I believe it's true because the Bible says it's true. Jesus says, this is what you're going to go do. You're going to do the things I did. And so maybe you struggle to believe that. Or maybe yours is about, I will be saved. What you believe about the future is so being informed by your broken past, not not the saving past, not the gospel, that you live with so much fear of what could happen instead of being confident of what already happened will bring it to completion in the end. I don't know which one it is. And then why do you think you struggle to believe that? And what would change in your life if you did? Maybe you can have this conversation with your spouse or your ministry team, your friends. But let me pray for you because my hope every time I preach the gospel is that someone got saved. Right? Did you get saved today? I did. Because I'm being saved. It doesn't just happen once. It did happen once, but it's still happening. Let's pray. Father, there is no better news than your love for sinners, your power to make us saints, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ to empower us to live a way that pleases you and is the most abundant life possible. And we are certain, because of what you've already done, that you will complete what you started. Because you are faithful to your word. You always have been. You always will be. And so we boast in you and not in self. We boast in you and not in our ministries. We boast in you and not our strategies. We boast in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would teach us to talk about it more so that we would love it more. That we'd return to our first love. That we'd realize there's nothing that works better than the power of God for salvation through the gospel. We ask that you'd help us to believe it, to walk in light of it, to proclaim it, and to equip your people in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.